This is Science Friday. I'm John Dankosky. And I'm Regina Barber, scientist in residence at NPR's daily science podcast, Shortwave. Later in the hour, we'll hear about seeds that can plant themselves. And I'll talk with rapper Samus about AI-generated music. We'll also hear about the conflict between the Winnemum Wintu tribe in Northern California and plans there to raise the height of the Shasta Dam. But first, a court case in Texas this week could have big implications for medication-based abortion care in the U.S. It involves the FDA's approval of the drug mifepristone, which is used as part of a two-drug combination in most medication abortions. Joining me now to talk about this and other science news of the week is Maggie Kurth, senior science writer at 538. She's based in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Maggie, welcome back to Science Friday. Hi, thanks for having me. So Maggie, tell me about this court case. What's at issue here? Yeah, so this is a this is a court case in Texas, but it could lead to medication abortions being banned nationwide. And a ruling could come down as soon as today. And it's a very science-centric kind of situation, at least sort of. The plaintiffs are suing the FDA, and they're alleging that the agency ignored sound scientific practice and its own guidelines when it approved the drug mifepristone for sale more than 20 years ago. Now, like you said, mifepristone is part of this two-drug regimen that makes up a medication abortion. So patients take it first, and it blocks the uptake of progesterone, which makes uterine lining start to break down, the embryo detaches, and then patients take misoprostol, which is a drug that softens and opens the cervix and starts contractions. Taken together, that regimen is more than 90% effective in the first nine weeks of pregnancy. And this type of medication abortion has become very common in the U.S., right? Yeah, over the last 20 years, it's become really common. It accounts for more than half of all abortions, and that was even before the Dobbs decision. So it might actually be even more of them now that getting in for a surgical abortion is harder because there's fewer places. So you've already said, Maggie, that this regimen is more than 90% effective in what it's trying to do in the first nine weeks of pregnancy. This case is over the alleged safety review for the drug. So what do we know about how safe it really is? Well, it's been shown to be quite safe. So one of the most rigorous evaluations in the United States, which involved more than 50,000 Californians, found that less than half a percent of them suffered any major complications that required hospitalization, surgery, or blood transfusion. And an FDA analysis of potential mifepristone complications over 18 years found just 24 deaths out of nearly 4 million users. And that includes like deaths had to be reported, even if they didn't have anything to do with taking the drug. So that includes people who were murdered or had drug overdoses that had nothing to do with mifepristone. And even at that 24 deaths out of 4 million users, that's a lower death rate than penicillin, than Viagra, and then full-term pregnancy itself. Wow. So so the numbers seem to be pretty straightforward here. What exactly is the case that's being made in court? So this is where things get a little messy. Uh, these claims are not new. They've been lodged against the FDA frequently enough over the last two decades that there are two separate reports from the Government Accountability Office, which is the independent watchdog agency that investigates the government for Congress. And both of these reports found that the FDA had followed its own guidelines. It had followed proper, you know, science when it made some of these decisions. But this lawsuit is about a lot of these technical details, and it's really about what is safe enough and what that actually means, which becomes something that's particularly complicated given that any drug's safety is a subjective value. And it's really about this balance between benefit and risk. So if you are someone that thinks abortion has no benefit, as the plaintiffs and possibly the judge does in this case, 
then mifepristone might never be safe enough. So then what exactly happens if the judge rules against the FDA here? Is is it banned everywhere across the U.S.? Sales would have to stop in the whole U.S., yeah. But that definitely wouldn't be the end of the story. The case would be appealed for sure. Well, we'll keep watching this story, of course, in the weeks to come. Let's move on. In a few weeks ago, Maggie, we talked about some seismic research into the motion of the Earth's core. And now there's new information about the core actually having another core? I know. Yeah, this is so great. Like I thought (laughs) it made me think about that old Tootsie Pop commercial of like one, (laughs) two, three. So, but scientists are arguing over how many layers there are to the earth. And traditionally, you've probably heard four, crust, mantle, outer core, inner core. But in recent years, some scientists have come up with this theory that there is an inner, inner core also. And the theory is based on how these earthquake waves change as they travel through the center of the earth. Scientists can detect the remnants of big earthquakes on the exact opposite side of the world. And the changes in the waves compared to where they started tell us something about what kinds of material they're moving through. This new study is looking at these waves in a new way, and it's taking advantage of a growing number of seismic instruments around the globe to track quake waves not just once, but as they kind of bounce around the planet's inside. And they found that the very center of the core has a bigger impact on slowing waves down than the outer part of the center of the core. Now, that doesn't mean that the innies have won this debate. (laughs) A lot of this boils down to this very, I hesitate to say pedantic argument, about whether there are two distinct layers of the inner core or whether it's more like a single thing that's just gradually a little bit different as you get deeper. But, but it's all the happy result, I suppose, all this uncertainty of much better technology that's helping us detect earthquakes. Right. Yeah. It's like we've, we've got really cool new seismic technology and we have it in a lot more places. And that's good regardless of what's happening on the center of the earth. And by the way, kids, in case you don't know what Maggie's talking about around the the Tootsie Pop, you can look up the old commercial on YouTube. It's still there. Trust me. Um, So let's go from the core of the planet to way up above the planet. There's an update now on the International Space Station. Tell us more. Yeah. So there's currently some astronauts stranded on the ISS, and they're going to be stuck there until at least September. This team consists of two Russians and an American astronaut named Frank Rubio. And they got to the ISS back in September of 2022, and they were scheduled to come home this March. But in December, the ship they came in on was found to have a coolant leak, probably caused by an impact with a teeny tiny little meteoroid. That ship is now going to go back home alone, uncrewed. And instead, the Russian space agency is launching a new ship, probably today, that will both restock the ISS with food and supplies and be capable of ferrying those astronauts home. But the Russian space agency is also saying that they're going to be up there for a lot longer than originally planned. Uh, This week, they announced that the crew won't return until next September. Oh, wow. But does being up there that long pose any difficulties for the astronauts at all? So if they end up staying up there until next September, they now have a chance of breaking some records for the longest stay on the ISS. Currently, that's held by an American astronaut named Mark Vandehei, who landed last March after a 355-day mission. So there have been Russian astronauts that stayed in space longer, but they were on the old Mir space station. And we know from studies on people like Mark Vandehei that staying in space for a year can have some serious impacts on your body. You know, these folks have experienced things like weight loss and immune system changes, vision problems, and even damage to DNA. 
Okay, so we've got some more mundane news here, but stay with us. And this isn't as exciting as the Earth's core or people floating around in space. It's about a squabble in the scientific publishing world, but it's actually kind of a big deal, Maggie. Yeah, so this is really interesting. Uh, journalist Martin Enserink at Science is reporting that the proceedings of the Royal Society B Biological Sciences, this is a journal, has refused to retract a paper that has been judged to be fake. Now, this paper is by a researcher from the University of Delaware, and it had found that anemone fish can tell whether or not coral reefs are healthy. But it came under fire when a whistleblower included it in a set of questionable research. And this investigation done by the University of Delaware after that found that it's really unlikely that the researchers could have completed the 1,800 trials, each taking nine minutes, that they claim to have done in the 13 days that they claim to have done it in. <laughs> it seems like just the, the math doesn't hold up there, right? The math, the math was not mathing. Um, so the university actually asked for this paper to be retracted. And then another paper by the same authors was found to be definitely faking data, and it was retracted by the journal Science. But this one so far has dodged a bullet because the authors corrected it to say that, oh, wait, sorry, it actually took us 33 days to do those experiments. And if that sounds a little fishy, well, it sounded that way to the whistleblowers, too. <laughs> so explain a little bit more about what the journal's doing here. Like, why don't they just retract it or put some sort of a warning label on it or, or something? Well, what they told science is that basically with that correction made, they couldn't prove the experiments were impossible to have done. And so they're not retracting it because it can't be proven to be fake because the correction made it plausible. Interesting. Okay. All right. Well, I don't know about you, Maggie. It's been quite a week here. We've had a lot going on and I'm feeling a, a little bit burned out. And researchers are actually trying to figure out what exactly that means when we say, ugh, I'm feeling really burned out. What do they find? Yeah, this is great because it's very much a, like, have you ever really looked at your hand kind of situation? Um, <laughs> you know, research has suggested that we're all increasingly burnt out. Like, people report this. But what's really wild about this phenomenon, writes Sujata Gupta in Science News, is that researchers are not totally sure what burnt out actually means. So there's some big debates in the world of science about how to define this and how to measure it, even though it's a feeling that so many people report sharing. So, so we don't really know. Is, is it a physical thing, a mental thing? I know we feel it in a lot of different ways, but but what do we know? Well, you know, because definitions and measurements aren't consistent, the results of research aren't either. So Gupta found that estimates for the prevalence of physician burnout, for instance, varied from zero to 80.5%. And like, what do you even do with data like that? That's too big of a spread to know what kind of a problem you have or how to fix it. And the fixing it is its own problem. So scientists are apparently knee deep in this debate about whether burnout is a situational thing that needs to be fixed with like fewer Zoom meetings, or whether it's just a diagnosable mental illness akin to a different form of depression. It seems, though, that this is a line of inquiry, a line of investigation that, that's really important. So many people are reporting this, obviously, in our lives, but it feels, Maggie, like post-COVID and everyone being locked up at home, there really is a different way of thinking about burnout, about how much we work, how much effort we put into our, our lives. It seems like a really important thing to be studying right now. 
Yeah, I think so. I mean, and it's it seems like an important space to get our heads wrapped around. And it's really interesting to me that it's something that hasn't been figured out before now. Maybe it just took enough people talking about it. Yeah, I, I think a, a, enough of us are talking about it. Well, it's Friday, so at least we get to relax for a couple of days. Maggie Kurth is Senior Science Writer at 538. She's based in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Thanks so much for being with us today and, and for bringing us all these stories, Maggie. Thank you so much.